Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of September. Tom Tilly with you. And today's briefing is part two of my interview with Annika Smethurst on her book, The Accidental Prime Minister. You usually try and make friends along the way, given you mm. might need their support in the future. Politicians hate being hated, usually. Not Scott Morrison. He's okay with it. Yeah, well, as long as he's uh, comfort with conflict. We'll also discuss Scott Morrison's Scotty from the Shire persona and how real or not it is. Scott Morrison does have elements of Daggy Dad. He hams it up, but he hasn't picked a whole new personality type. He's just picked these traits that he already has, dialed them up to a million. Part two of The Accidental Prime Minister with Annika Smithhurst later on The Briefing. First, Belinda Russell from Nine is here for today's headlines. Hello, Belinda. Welcome back to The Briefing. Hey, Tom. Nice to be here. You're a dad now. Congratulations. thank you. I'll be taking lots of tips from you on parenting. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, my (laughs) baby's 10 now. So (laughs) it does feel like just yesterday, though, that I was in your place. Uh, Mm. How's it going? It's going really well. Uh, Maxwell got to meet his uh, grandmother again yesterday, Prue, my mum. She is frothing. I bet you she is. Uh, Is this grandchild number? Six. Number six, okay. So. They're coming quickly. There's been three <laughs> Tillies born this year. This is the third. They're, each of them are three months apart, so they'll be good friends, hopefully. Oh, she'll be in love for sure. And uh, always handy to have Grandma on, on, on the side. Absolutely. <laughs> Lots of learning from her too. Yeah, absolutely. Victoria Police are preparing for more anti-vax protests today following yesterday's violent chaos. Here's Victoria's Police Commissioner Shane Patton speaking last night. We have intelligence that there may be repeat protests tomorrow. We will be out in force again. I'm not going to disclose what our tactics will be tomorrow, but they will be different. Do not do this. Do not come into the city. Yeah, well, they'll need to be different because police were completely overwhelmed in those shocking scenes yesterday. Uh, Up to 2,000 protesters wearing high-vis completely overwhelmed the police, in some cases attacking them and their cars as well. Horrific scenes as they choked Melbourne city streets and then walked onto the Westgate Bridge and blocked traffic for several hours. Wasn't it just crazy to see that footage? Crazy and scary. Mm. Uh, just to, to some of those police officers who were attacked and the reporters as well. Mm. Uh, yeah, once they were on the bridge, they were chanting every day. Which singing, means they'll come back. Of course, yeah. uh, which so we expect more today, uh, singing horses and, and letting off flares. I mean, police say that three of their officers were injured mm. and 62 people were arrested during the clashes, which saw police uh, using rubber bullets. And you can understand why it was violent. Yeah. And so many people are angry about the actions of these constructors workers, obviously the Premier, Dan Andrews, and said, look, the only way to to make things safer in Victoria is vaccinating, not coming together in these kind of protests where, you know, there's no masks and people are all over the place, basically. One of the most interesting critiques was from Victoria's nursing body, who said the demonstrators are fighting for the right to overwhelm the state's health system. So it's a bizarre situation, really unsettling, I think, for a lot of Victorians who've been doing the right thing. It is. And, you know, Dan Andrews... uh sort of said, we've had to do this because you weren't complying to Mm. the rules. And now they're hitting the streets and causing more chaos. And you just got to think about the other industries, the arts and entertainment industry, businesses, small businesses who are on their knees and have been shut for months and months. And that's why people are angry because the construction industry largely has been able to go ahead. You know, they have had restrictions and they're going to have another two weeks now, but that's partly because of their reaction. And one of the main things they're protesting against is mandatory vaccinations, which kick in from today. They need one jab to go 
on site. So this is essentially an anti-vaccination protest. So you've got these big, tough guys too scared to get the jab. The Commonwealth's urging Pfizer to apply for its COVID vaccine to be given to children as young as five um, because Pfizer's released data showing the jab could protect children that young. Yeah, Health Minister Greg Hunt has written to Pfizer encouraging them to apply to Australia's TGA for approval for the vaccine to be given to kids aged 5 to 11 as soon as possible. Pfizer is already planning to apply for US approval after it found that its vaccine could protect children as young as five when they were given a third of a normal oh, dose. Okay. Yeah, epidemiologist Professor Tony Blakely told the project vaccinating kids would suppress viral spread at schools and approval could come by the end of the year. We know that sending the kids back to school is going to amp up the transmission, but we know at the same time that the vaccine coverage is chasing it down. But, you know, it's great news that we can start vaccinating five plus some, you know, maybe in a couple of months. Yeah, so Pfizer's already cleared to do children 12 and older, but I think this would allay a lot of fears for a lot of parents if they were able to vaccinate the younger children who, who I guess people are worried about once we open up that they could be in serious trouble. And Queensland's border bubble has been scrapped this morning after Northern New South Wales went into lockdown again because of a COVID case on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I know, get me out of here. <laughs> get that show out of here. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, the Tweed and Byron LGAs of New South Wales returned to lockdown yesterday after a crew member mm. on the show uh, was working in Byron, uh, tested positive. Yeah. So the woman arrived recently from Sydney, had been infectious over the weekend, um, visited several venues. Um, so concerning there, um, the lockdown of the border regions was followed by an announcement from the Queensland authorities um, cracking down on workers entering the state from New South Wales, which means the bubble's ending only nine days after it was reintroduced. So that's been really complex, hasn't it, that border? It has, but also it doesn't help when vaccination rates in places like Byron Bay are so mm. low. We've seen you know, Pete Murray, musician, trying to speak out to encourage people to get vaccinated. Uh, so that certainly makes things harder. And the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison's had his first one-on-one with US President Joe Biden. They met in New York on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. The United States and Australia are working in lockstep on the challenges that I laid out today in my speech to the United Nations. Ending COVID, addressing the climate crisis, defending democracy, shaping the rules of the world for the 21st century. Yeah, this meeting comes as European Union officials added weight to the French anger over the new AUKUS partnership with Australia, the US and the UK, saying France has been mistreated over the subs deal. Uh, the sudden announcement of the agreement last week saw Australia pull out of a long-running $90 billion deal to build submarines with France. Mm. So Scott Morrison won't be meeting the French president, apparently, um, who's obviously furious about the way they've been treated. He says they've been deceived for months at a time over this deal. Well, it's, you yeah. know, ScoMo's like, oh, yeah, I talked to him the night before. They're like, <laughs> oh, it's, uh, yeah. yeah. You can understand um, why France would be annoyed, but you'd hope that our Prime Minister is doing what's best for our country. And Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has just scraped back into power following an early election gamble, um, but he hasn't uh, managed to escape being in minority government. Trudeau uh, called the election two years early, hoping to bank on support for his COVID response to boost his party's numbers in Parliament and be able to govern without relying on minor parties. But results saw Trudeau's Liberal Party lose one seat and that has been seen as a backlash against the PM's decision to call that early poll. All right. Thank you, Belinda Russell. Great having you on the briefing um, again. No Annika's back as we hit part two of our ScoMo interview. 
All right, now for part two on our interview with Annika on her book, The Accidental Prime Minister. Annika, fascinating yesterday finding out about his early childhood and a little bit about what he studied at university and then his early career. Now, what really stood out to me from his early career, particularly in the New Zealand tourism body, then in his time as the New South Wales director of the Liberal Party, and then particularly during his time as the boss of Tourism Australia, is just how much conflict he got into and how much of a a stomach he had for a fight. It's strange because a lot of people report that he has a glass jaw. And I would say that if he gets criticism that he doesn't think is fair, he really arcs up. He does not like it at all. But that's different to conflict. He's very happy going into a place, telling people what he wants, annoying a whole other cohort. If he can see that either, in his opinion, he is right, or that it's going to lead to something greater. So I think that was the case in New Zealand. He went over there. Unsurprisingly, the Kiwis were not happy with this young 30-something Aussie coming in and telling them how to run their tourism board. But he really backed the minister. The minister got him over there. He was like, I work for you and I don't really care about the board. He comes back to Australia and the reverse happens when he's at Tourism Australia. A lot of people might remember the Where the Bloody Hell Are You campaign with Lara Bingle. We've saved you a spot on the beach. So where the bloody hell are you? He was the head of Tourism Australia when that came about and he went to war with the minister, Fran Bailey. Now, she was a Liberal and they really clashed and it didn't seem to bother him at all. He just kept going and kept fighting. Now, he lost that fight, but it didn't seem to scare him off. And I think that's really unusual for not just a public servant, but for somebody that wants to get into politics in the future, which he was showing by this stage, you usually try and make friends along the way, given you mm. might need their support in the future. Politicians hate being hated, usually. Not Scott Morrison. He's okay with it. Because he doesn't seem, as you write, to have a deep sense of ideology, not a, a core belief like Tony Abbott did, you know, growing up as a young Catholic, he brought a real social conservative agenda to his politics. But Scott Morrison seems a lot more pragmatic, which in some senses, like all of his traits, is really good, but other times it can be really bad. Yeah, I find it interesting for a politician because when you go to Canberra as a press gallery journalist or anybody, everybody lines up in these things. When you look at politicians, you're like, well, here's the Labor Party and here's the Liberal Party. And within the Labor Party, we've got the right and the left and they're from different states. And that's how you sort of understand factions and who controls who. And it's this sort of guidebook that no one talks about, but we all sort of know about. So you can work out who's going to win different battles and fights and where they're going to sit on different policy issues. He's from New South Wales. When he first came in, he was considered a moderate of the Liberal Party. Now, nobody would see him that way now, you know, especially socially. Uh, we know that through his a lot of his beliefs, he is not that way. But the more conservatives, the Peter Dutton sort of grouping within the Liberal Party and the Tony Abbotts really don't accept him either. They say he's not from the right, he's not one of us. Now, if you're going to represent 25 million people, it's probably a good thing not to mm. sit in these little groups because most of us don't. I don't know. I've yeah. sort of left on them things, right on some things. You change as you age. Yeah. Different policies come at you in different times and, and you reflect them differently. So I would say having somebody that's pragmatic is probably better. And during COVID, we've seen that. He yeah. splashed a lot of cash with JobKeeper. Now, I don't know if we had a more conservative liberal, if they would have felt more comfortable handing out taxpayers' money in that way. Having said that, you look at other decisions he's made that make him seem very conservative. He didn't vote for same-sex marriage, despite the fact his electorate did. So he's flexible, which mm. is a good thing. But 
when you're faced with huge policy challenges, sometimes an ideology like that acts as a guiding principle. You know what you believe in, in your core beliefs. I am of the left or I am of the right. And it helps guide you. It, it, you know who your friends are. You know what they believe in. You know what the people that put you there want you to do wherever you sit on that spectrum. And I think it's also good for transparency when people put you in these positions. Because mm. it helps build trust, right? If people know where you stand and that you won't just flip-flop, they have a sense of where you're going and, and what they can expect from you. Yeah, I think you say this with politicians that you might not necessarily agree with, but you respect. And you hear this at the end of careers when somebody from the left stands up and goes, I hated that bloke politically, but we get on really well privately, who's on the right. And you sort of think, how can that be? But once you sort of understand where someone sits and you're like, well, we're never going to agree on these things. If you're a member of the Greens, these are your guiding principles. You're out there saying them every day. Same with people on the far right. I think when you sit in between, you're more likely to perceive to be, whether or not, open to manipulation. Now, politics isn't black and white, so sometimes that's good. We've all got to sort of agree on a different sets of things and where we're going to negotiate different policies. So it can be both a blessing and a curse, I would say. We talked about how he has a tough side, but the only, I guess, real soft spot where maybe people might feel some empathy for Scott Morrison in this story is the story of him and Jenny, that they actually were childhood sweethearts. They were young Christians. They dearly wanted to start a family early, but it took them 14 years to fall pregnant. How do you think that tough journey shaped Scott Morrison's character? The one thing, you know, I found difficult writing about and hearing about is they tried for 14 mm. years to have children. And I've never been through an IVF battle. Um, I spoke to a lot of people that knew them around then, and he's obviously spoken about it at length. But the damage that does to your relationship, they got married really young, sort of in their early 20s, and they wanted babies straight away. He was obviously building a very successful career along the way, and it was a nightmare. Not only is that expensive, the hormones that go into it, the stress and relationships, uh, he would say to Jenny, you're enough. You know, maybe we just don't have kids, which I think he did to make her feel better. I actually think he always wanted children. Mm. She always just desperately wanted to be a mum, and all their friends sort of around them say she was really one of those women that was very maternal and born to be a mother. Eventually it happened and you can see the pride when he talks about his own children. Uh, he's got two girls. He obviously had them later in life. He's well into his 50s now and they're tween age, I guess you'd say. Mm. But I think it changed him in many ways, that struggle. I think he said he, to me, you know, it made you question everything, your faith and things like this and your marriage and things that he really believed in. So we all have our hardships. People have different hardships. That's one I'd hope no one would go through. But it probably is the more personal side of the book. I think a lot of it um, does give an example of his ruthlessness and mm. his um, political calculations along the way and this formation of Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister. This was a very different side to him. I first noticed this, Annika, during the 2019 election where he was going so badly. It looked like there was no way he was going to win. He's cruising around the country in his hurley cap. Most people wrote him off as a complete idiot. I remember he posted this video with Mick Fanning's mother and it was so awkward and he was trying to sort of leverage her credibility in the community in, in this way that just looks so, so bad. But then I ducked into the comments and I saw a lot of what looked like young blokes kind of sticking up for him saying, good on you, essentially saying you're one of us, you're just a regular guy, we understand you. So did a lot of people misread that? Did a lot of people not notice how much he was actually connecting with the average Australian? 
hundred percent, including myself. I was on the road with him and I remember one day being in hysterics with another journalist at, you know, how much he was hamming it up with the hats and the daggy dad. I think you're exactly right. He's very good at pretending he's not part of the Canberra bubble, even though he is very much part of the Canberra bubble. But it's a trick Trump uses, sort of says, you know, this is just stuff people in Canberra think about. This is what the mums and dads out there are thinking about. And look, in one way, he's right. You know, there has been estimates of how much politics people consume in their lives. And it's about 90 seconds a day, you know, Mm. and it might be the Channel 7 report while they're getting dinner in the back of their head. You know, they're not sort of thinking about it day in, day out, every little misstep he makes. And one thing I've noticed about his opponents, both within his party and uh, the ones that sit on the other side of the chamber, is they overemphasise all his missteps. Like, he makes mistakes. We know this. He says silly things. They seem to think every time he does one of these, it's, oh, he's lost the election. Oh, the voters will hate this. People don't listen to, like, everyday stuff. And if they do... They don't absorb it um, necessarily in the same way. So I think if I was going up against him, I would try and emphasise those missteps less and see the greater theme of him. And he is very good, as you say, at pretending he's one of the blokes. Now, I reckon Hawkey's a great example. He was a Rhodes Scholar, but I don't think people voted for Hawkey or liked talking about Bob Hawke because he was a Rhodes Scholar. It was he loves to scull a pint, he loves sport, and he seems to be like one of us. And I think it's a very good skill people need to have if they want to go into politics to either try and be like their fellow man or actually be like their fellow man. Was Hawkey faking it and is ScoMo faking it? I don't think either of them were. The clever thing I think about Scott Morrison is he didn't come in and try and be a different person. Scott Morrison does have elements of daggy dad. He hams it up, but he hasn't picked a whole new personality type. He's just picked these traits that he already has, dialed them up to a million. So it's not a huge stretch. You know, he does Mm. love going to the footy and he does love his daughters. He actually grew up liking rugby union, so he switched to rugby league. So it's not a huge shift. He grew up going to a Presbyterian church, but then he shifted to be a Pentecostal. So there's an element of truth to this persona we know now. But as you say, it's not a gigantic or a, a false shift from where he was. Yeah, and I think that is the key because if anybody after that long tries to be someone they're not, they're going to be found out pretty quickly. What do you think could bring him down at the election? There was this great quote towards the end of my book and it was given by a cabinet minister who said, I said, how do you think the women's issue is playing? You know, this is often the thing, he's bad with women, blah, 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 blah. I said, how do you think that's playing out? And they said, opinions are like wet cement. They actually swirl around a lot. They don't set. If there is a pattern of behaviour... He said a lot of silly things about ladies. He said, I don't hold the hose with the bushfires. Now we've got some vaccine issues that are dogging Mm, him. Big ones. If it's seen to be a pattern, they will set. And if opinion sets against him, it's very hard to change opinion. The benefit he had at the last election is not a lot of people knew him. People had made up their mind on Bill Shorten and pollsters will tell you they didn't like him. Even Labor voters may have voted Labor, but they didn't necessarily warm to him. Scott Morrison, the jury was still out. I think the problem becomes for him if these patterns of behaviour, these walking away from responsibility, which we see, this um, blame shifting, if that is seen as a big issue, then he will lose the next election. Having said that, Tom, I've observed this man a lot. I've researched him you would never underestimate him. And if you would do so at your peril, if you were the Labor Party, because he is ruthless, he's a better campaigner than the previous two prime ministers. Maybe not Abbott. Abbott was a pretty good campaigner. But he is just 
persistent and I would think that they really need to bring their A game. Even though Labor are ahead in the polls now, this guy knows how political parties work, he knows how politics works, and he's going to bring everything to this next election. Yeah, and that's where the book ends as well, which is a great point to end the interview. You're dead right about the next election. It really could go either way, and I think Australians will be in a very different mood. If this sort of end of lockdown strategy actually works and we are doing all the things we love doing by next year, the electorate will be in a pretty happy place and maybe we'll have forgotten some of the the darker moments and the missteps along the way. Great to go into depth with you, Annika. We're often just quickly bumping through headlines, but we really got to go for it on these last two episodes, unpacking your book, The Accidental Prime Minister. To your briefing, listeners, I really implore you to go out and get a copy. Even if you really hate him, you'll just understand him a lot more because this is a really great character study. So thank you, Annika. No worries. Thanks. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the Gabby Petito story in the US. Listener.